Welcome into I'll Have You Know. This is your co-host, David Drew Gleaver, Rice Business Class of 2012. This is a special episode. Before we get rocking here, we have a couple of folks I'd like to introduce. It does take a team to make all this stuff happen. So I'd like to introduce Tim Okabayashi, Class of 2005. And we also have Kyle Rowland on as well. Tim, do you want to say hello? Hey, David. Really excited to be here. Thanks. Awesome. Tim, also you're a member of an alumni association as well. So um, as we've been working together for almost a year now, what is it that you're excited about with this podcast and and what we're creating here? Uh, Dave, we're really excited to bring you know, these audible stories from alumni to help engage with the broader Rice MBA community. Awesome. And Kyle, we want to hear from you as well. Kyle is the Assistant Director of Alumni Relations. Kyle, you want to share a little bit about what you're excited about with I'll Have You Know? Sure. Uh, so my role is generally regional programming outside of Houston, and I'm always looking for ways to engage folks beyond just having events. So I've really enjoyed um, listening to the really great episodes that y'all have been recording, as well as interacting with folks um, on the back and on the front end, just helping to engage a greater population. Yeah, and I think engagement is really key here. And so as we're moving forward towards the alumni reunion getting together and we want to see people engage a lot more. And so uh, we're running a special drawing and Kyle, you want to share a little bit more about how we're structuring the drawing and how people can uh, cash in on the swag. Heck yeah, uh, we are running a drawing. So uh, for those of you who are listening to us, uh, we'd love if you would leave a comment or review on Apple podcasts anytime between March 1st and March 15th. Um, between anyone who's left a comment, uh, we're going to go ahead and select two winners to win a swag package that our office will send to you as a thanks for listening. There's some more details in the show notes. I don't want to bore you with all the details, but definitely check them out and go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Awesome. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate that. And as most folks know, we're creating a platform here. We're covering lots of business and management topics, trying to make this more and more relevant to everyone. So Leaving the comments there and subscribing was tremendously helpful to us to make this more relevant to the broader rice business ecosystem and beyond. So Tim, Kyle, thank you so much for chiming in here. Again, thank you in advance for leaving some comments and subscribing on Apple Podcasts. And without further ado, on to the show. Today on I'll Have You Know. As public entities look at their balance sheets post-COVID with the, the tax impact and the revenue impact, they are probably going to be more and more open to the concept of private capital coming in and helping them fund either new projects or help them monetize existing assets. Mark Morehouse has earned his Rice Owl Wings twice, first as an undergrad in chemical engineering and second graduating with an MBA. He spent a career in investment banking specializing in transportation infrastructure, one of the biggest areas where he sees the potential for explosive growth, public-private partnerships, a concept much more widely accepted in other parts of the world. Today, he talks about private investment in public infrastructure, the biggest transportation infrastructure project in the U.S. he's involved in, and what's the most unusual venture he's raised money for. Joining us today on I'll Have You Know, Mark Morehouse, a double rice grad. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Hey, Christine. Great to see you. Glad to, glad to be here to talk about rice and, uh, and adventures during and after. 
So I'd like to talk about, you're, I guess, what you would call a, a double graduate. You completed undergrad, went on to Rice Business. Is that fairly unusual? Or do you get a lot of attention because of that? You know, I don't get a lot of attention because of it. Um, and I would say it's it's fairly unusual, although there were two people in my class at uh, at Jones School who were of that description. One of them was my wife. So we, um, we were double income, no kids um, people before we went to Rice and both decided to go back at the same time. And then uh, we had a kid in the middle of it. So it's, it's one of those cautionary tales they probably don't tell people who are applying to Rice, but we, we were that couple <laughs> and, uh, you know, quite, quite the adventure. You were an Air Force kid, so you moved around a lot growing up. Was Texas a place where you spent a, a lot of your childhood? So not really. I mean, we, we moved probably every two or three years. Um, can't remember what my total count was, but 12 or 13 different places. But I went to high school for, for most of my high school years in San Antonio. And, and it really, it does feel like home. My, my folks retired there after they left the Air Force. And uh, we've got strong, strong roots there. Um, and so I would like to consider myself a Texan. And, and we may be heading back there before too long when, uh, when we're done with the working careers. You specialized in chemical engineering in undergrad and then went on to a career in investment banking. Can you talk a little bit about that transition? Uh, what was that like? And was that your plan all along? So it wasn't the plan all along. It's a plan that, that developed slowly over time. I got the chemical engineering degree, really um, knowing that I wanted to be an engineer and, and knowing that I wanted to go to Rice um, as, a, as a great Texas engineering school really set me on the course to, to get that chemi degree. And, um, you know, coming out of college, I thought, well, yeah, the chemical industry is the place to be. So I went and I did some really fun and interesting things in engineering. I, I built an ethylene plant, you know, did some contract manufacturing, lots of interesting stuff. Then was able to transition that engineering background into a, a sales and marketing job with, uh, with the same chemical company. So, you know, took sort of the, the technical skills and 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 then crafted them into um, into more of a, a sales role, which was interesting and and fun. I actually got to launch a couple of new products in the chemical industry as part of that role. But what I found was I really enjoyed the sales part of it, but it wasn't very technically challenging. I enjoyed the engineering part of it, but at least with the company that I was working for, the plants that they were uh, that they had were not located in the in the nicest of places, and I'm I'm more of an urban person, and so wanted to to combine both the technical challenges um, that come with engineering and and sort of the salesmanship that I I found that I was fairly good at, and investment banking seemed like a great way um, to combine those two skill sets, and so you know after many years in the chemical industry, I decided to go back to business school with the specific goal of going into investment banking. And the Jones School was a great opportunity to uh, to really facilitate that transition, that career change. What are some of the highlights that you recall looking back on your experience at Rice Business and also some of the important things that it sort of taught you in, in your current role? I think the um, finance program at Rice was fantastic. And the, the professors that I had there um, were challenging and innovative and very helpful and hands-on. And I think that's really a hallmark of, of the Rice experiences or the Jones School experience is hands-on instruction and, and you know, a personal relationship with some of the, the smartest professors that you could find. And so you know, I think back to, 
to really the finance courses is really being my core focus. Obviously, you know, there were other courses that uh, that were helpful, but really the, the finance side of it really helped me build a strong basis with which to pitch myself to the investment banking world and then be prepared to execute in the, in the banking world really right from the start. You're in Chicago now. Is this the time of year that you miss Texas the most? Are we getting into that time of year? You know, it's it's the very early stages of that uh, of that cycle, right? January and February here are a little bit grim. Right now, we still we had a little bit of snow, um, but not anything measurable. And I'm still able to go work out outside, so that's good. Come January, February, as the days are gray and the snow piles up, it's a little bit grim and and makes me long for Texas. Yes, I'm a, I'm a Midwesterner originally, so I can relate. Yep. Yeah, of course, you know, the other side of the coin is in, you know, July and August when it's, um, you know, 90 degrees and 95% humidity in Houston. It's pretty nice here generally, although it, it does get pretty warm sometimes. You are currently Managing Director of Oppenheimer uh, Transportation Infrastructure. Can you talk a little bit about just some of the big projects that you've worked on? Um, some of them have national and international reach. Yeah, so I, I've been at Oppenheimer now for um, for three years. I run the uh, the, the public private partnership investment banking uh, group, which is a small group, but uh, but that's my responsibility. And our focus is really on uh, on public private partnerships for transportation infrastructure. And for those of you who aren't familiar with public private partnership, it's basically private investment in public infrastructure. So that could be um, investments in toll roads or uh, airports or ports or buildings. It's an investment mechanism that has seen a lot of activity in Europe and Asia and Canada, but not so much in the United States. And now it's it's really starting to, to catch on here in the States. And, and we at Oppenheimer are, are part of that innovation wave. So we're working on a, a couple of really interesting projects that are big and innovative one of them is Terminal 1 at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York, which is an international terminal, international only. And the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey uh, has gone out to basically redevelop that terminal uh, and has selected uh, my clients, which is the Terminal 1 Group Association, or TOGA, which is a consortium of four international airlines, along with the, their private equity sponsors, to to redevelop the terminal. And it's, it is the biggest uh, transportation infrastructure project uh, in the U.S. currently, somewhere between 7 and $9 billion of, of development. So very exciting. The other project we're working on is a, a toll bridge in Joliet, Illinois, which uh, is a greenfield project. So it's brand new construction of a brand new bridge, which will, uh, will provide um, access to one of the largest inland ports in the country. We're advising the uh, the winning bidders on that project, and and that that's a project that's about to reach financial close. So very exciting that uh, that we're going to be breaking ground on a new bridge here in Illinois. So do you see the potential for a lot of growth in the U.S. in in that P three banking sector? Yeah, look, it's it's catching on um, because it's sort of an innovative and different uh, way of doing things, and because the the U.S. municipal and public sector market has access to uh, tax-exempt financing, which really doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. It's a little bit harder of a sell, but I think, um, you know, particularly as public entities look at their balance sheets post-COVID with the, the tax impact and and uh, and the revenue impact, 
they are probably going to be more and more open to the concept of private capital coming in and helping them fund either new projects or uh, or help them monetize existing assets in the space. And I guess the, the second point is I, I really think that that success breeds success. So the more of these projects that actually get done, the more acceptable it will be and more easy for the public sector to say, yeah, this is something that we would be interested in doing. I think the, the best example of that is probably in the airports space. If you look around the world, uh, airports all over the world, in Europe, in Latin America, uh, in Asia, are largely privately owned. Um, in the U.S., that's really not the case. Um, there, there are two privately owned airports in the U.S. One was, uh, one was constructed specifically without any federal funding. Um, and the other one uh, is the San Juan Airport in Puerto Rico, which is the first and only airport to undergo the FAA's Airport Investor Partnership Program, which basically allows for private investment to come in and, and take over an airport on, under a long-term concession. And that's a deal that, that I, uh, I worked on on behalf of the Puerto Rico uh, P3 Authority back in, in uh, 2012 and 2013. Uh, and we successfully brought that deal across the finish line. So that's, that's one airport now that's been done. There are, there are lots of airports around the country um, that could benefit from the multiple benefits that, that come from the, the AIPP. And certainly the federal government has been very supportive of the, of the concept of privatizing airports. And really, I think it's, it's a question of, can you get the public sector to see the benefits, and there are many, and to overcome the, this hasn't been done here before. So if you think about it, there's, there's a lot of need for, for political courage from the leadership, and that's a, that's a key component to any public-private partnership. Um, prior to the San Juan Airport getting done, the city of Chicago tried to privatize Midway Airport, and I advised the city of Chicago on that process, um, and we, we received significant bids and a winning bid of, of about $2.5 billion for a 99-year concession of Midway. Unfortunately, we, we opened those bids on the Friday after Lehman Brothers collapsed in the global financial crisis. And, and the world basically ended then from a financing standpoint. The lenders dried up, the equity eventually uh, walked away, and, and that deal fell apart. I think if that deal had gotten done, if we had gotten that across the finish line of financially closing, that there would be 20 airports privatized in the US already. But because, uh, because Midway didn't get there, that's not a great precedent. Um, because San Juan is in Puerto Rico and people don't recognize that Puerto Rico is part of the United States, it is, it's under the FAA, it's under the FAA's pilot program or, or under the FAA's AIPP, um, and, and this deal was done under the auspices of, of the U.S. federal government, you know, it, it, it's hard to get people to see that. So it's a tough sell, but one that I continue to evangelize around, around the U.S. and in the hopes of finding that next thing. And I think I think the next thing is out there. And once one gets done, uh, there will be many others to follow. One of the things I was reading about with with your work with Oppenheimer and some of your past projects was social infrastructure. What is social infrastructure? So social infrastructure is is an interesting um, subset of the public private partnership market. 
And basically, it's the monetization of non-revenue generating public structures. So think about vertical infrastructure, whether it's um, a police station or a courthouse or a campus building uh, at a university. Those structures really don't generate any revenue, so it's difficult to to find a revenue stream. So so basically, social infrastructure ends up being a contract with the public entity agreeing to make a payment, so essentially a lease payment in the in the parlance of, of P3 world, it's called availability payments. So when the building is made available to the public entity, they have to pay the availability payment. And the private sector uh, will come in, they will design, build, finance, operate, and maintain that uh, that building under a set of defined uh, defined criteria. So bathrooms have to be clean, the AC has to work, et cetera, et cetera. And they run it and the public sector uses it and just has to make that payment when it's available for them to use it. It's a really interesting way of not only financing a new construction project, but also transferring risk of, of design and construction risk, of operational risk, and then relying on the expertise of people that that build and run buildings to have something that's that is going to be in great shape for the life of the life of whatever the, the term is of the deal. So these deals are usually, you know, 30, 40, 50 year uh, transactions. And if you as the as the public entity can have somebody else come in and ensure that that everything is is up and running. Uh, and up to standards over that lifetime, uh, I think there's a huge benefit operationally that uh, that maybe you wouldn't get as a as a public entity that is just um, financing um, a building using municipal bonds. And then you've got to maintain it. You've got to you've got to operate it. You may not put in the best air conditioning system, for instance, but the public sector would because they're going to be on the hook for repairing it over time, and they understand what the what the right standard is uh in terms of construction and 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 life cycle cost and they're going to be responsible for it so you as the public entity you know you care what they put in but you don't really have to worry about it because if if it's broken you don't have to pay for it it's a it's an interesting interesting concept and one that um you know is catching on um, there have been a number of projects um, around the country in, you know, courthouses, civic centers. Um, you know, we've worked on a couple police stations that didn't actually get done, but but conceptually, you know, seem to fit the mold. And um, yeah, I think there will probably be more and more of that. So I guess I'm sort of looking at it as this is an asset to the public, even though it may not be. Uh, aspects of the the facility may not be revenue generating, but it's still this tremendous asset to the general public. Is that sort of the way it's viewed? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. It's a facility that can be used by the public um, by whatever entity has signed the contract, and um, and it's going to be there and and operated under specific standards. So um, so you know it's going to be it's going to be usable, and if it's not usable, you don't have to pay for it. Um, I guess the you know the, the the nuance there is that uh, just to to throw out another um, sort of civic example, uh, parking. If if you as a as city own a parking structure, 
that parking structure generates revenue as people pay to park. You could do a, a public-private partnership of that asset, and that would be you wouldn't have to pay anything. The 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 rates that are paid by the parkers would be the the revenue stream that would support that um, support that financing. In the case that you don't have parking revenue, you know you've got to, you as the public entity have to come up with the money in order to uh, in order to fund the deal. Let's talk a little bit about COVID. We know COVID has caused tremendous disruption in the transportation industry in general, particularly air travel. On your end, you're sort of on the front end of a lot of these projects. How has COVID impacted your business? At its base, uh, you know, things like airports where traffic is down, uh, you know, at one point it was down like 90% in the U.S. I think the numbers now are closer to down 60% or so. Um, it's It's hard to make the case for uh, for that being a great uh, great revenue stream, but uh, at the same time, I think people, particularly in the infrastructure investing world, take a long view of things and realize that that more than likely we're not going to be stuck in in this situation um, forever, and so there will be a return to normalcy. And I think people will have different views on what uh, what that normalcy actually looks like in terms of in terms of passenger traffic, in terms of you know, people's willingness to to get on a plane, et cetera, is still up in question. Now, specifically, um, you know, if you have clients who are airlines, like like I do, they're focused on, you know, on on really literally on survival right now, and it's a, a difficult time in the industry. So, you know, it's hard for them to focus on on infrastructure projects for the long term when they're they're trying to really save the business at, at its heart. So that that's a bit disruptive. I guess the, the other piece that, that's sort of disruptive is even though it's a technical industry and it's a finance industry, it's, it's also a people-driven business. And not being able to get on a plane and not being able to go see uh, clients either on the public side of things to convince them that, that these are good deals to do or on the, on the private sector side just to, to maintain the relationships and introduce people to to concepts, it's really hard. It's hard to to keep the momentum going. But again, I remain I remain optimistic that uh, that this is a temporary situation, and that that eventually we'll get back to to being able to get on planes and and go go uh, pitch people on ideas and and maintain relationships, and eventually get, you know all the all the underlying factors of traffic and uh, and people traveling uh, will return. And we'll be able to uh, to really fully take advantage of, of this industry and, and the opportunities that are out there. If the airlines survive this difficult period, uh, we know it's not going to be a light switch returning returning to normal. But I think there is the feeling, at least in just casual conversations, I've heard that people are going to have such a desire to travel that if the airlines can survive, there's going to be a just a, a heyday period of of several years that people are are going to want to to take that trip they've been putting off or they've had to put off. Yeah, there, there's obviously a lot of pent up demand on on the leisure side, right? People are are trapped in their homes and and want to get out and and go places. People in Chicago are right now thinking about the winter that's coming up and wanting to go someplace warm. So yeah, that that's definitely out there. And and I've got to say, um, on the business side of things, I've taken one business trip since. February, which is unusual for me. I'm generally on the road, you know, three or four days a week. 
um, taking one trip and it felt really good to get back to that face-to-face conversation. Um, you know, we, we were obviously very careful about how we undertook our interactions. Right. And, and, um, but it was, it was productive. It was worth it. It was, um, it felt, you know, right to be out there in front of clients. And, um, I think there, there've got to be a lot of business people out there that have that same feeling that you can't get the, you can't get the personal interaction that, that is really necessary to, to do sales at a high level of anything, whether it's financial services or, or goods, uh, without that personal interaction and, 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 um, you know, the online alternative, while it is okay, is not a real substitute for face-to-face interaction. I know you've worked a lot with the airlines and M&A, and we've seen a lot of that in, with at least American Airlines um, in the past few years. But because of COVID, do you see that uh, continuing as um, a method of survival for some of the airlines? Yeah, I I'm not sure that there's a lot of room for for additional consolidation in the in the airline industry, right? There's three majors or four if you include Southwest, um, and then there's a number of of low cost carriers. Um, obviously, all of the three majors, United, American, and Delta, have reached their their current footprint via M and A, right? Mm-hmm. So they they there's been combination of previous majors into now the three remaining majors and, and Southwest has been Southwest and, you know, continues to grow organically. Um, I don't think there's room. I don't personally think there's much room for, for greater consolidation among those four. Maybe there's some room among, you know, the, 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 the smaller carriers uh, to combine further, but I don't know that that's really going to move the needle. Yeah. If you look at it, uh, you know, uh, below the surface, right below the surface of the obvious com- combination of majors, you see lots of things like um, joint ventures with international carriers and so on. I think that that will continue, right? I think that's that's a smart way for the airlines to um, to expand their footprint without necessarily fully combining with somebody. So I think you'll, you'll probably continue to see that, but I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't look for a headline of uh, of majors combining in the in the airline industry. We've seen a lot of that, yes. I have one last COVID-related question uh, when it comes to transportation. We know there have been just about every business talks about how life is going to be different after COVID in their industry. Is there one thing in particular that you think COVID has changed our way of thinking when it comes to transportation? It's going to be maybe completely different when we, quote, return to normal. Hmm. Uh, You know, I'm not sure that there's there's one single thing. I mean, I could think of just personally of a, of a couple different things, which, you know, I used to take the train to work here in Chicago. I'm not sure that, that, and, and a lot of people do, right. And it's, it's part of, part of, uh, part of Chicago's whole attitude. Um, you know, everybody gets on the L and commutes downtown. I'm not sure that that's going to come back. That's, that's going to be a hard sell, I think. Um, and, and it's going to take some time. Um, contrast that with the airline industry, which is taking huge steps to ensuring that their product is safe, that that the experience, um, you know, is comfortable for for um, for their their customers. Um, you know, they have air filtration, which you know makes it 
there's so much air flowing through the airplanes that it, it's not a stagnant space, even though it seems like a small space. I don't think you have that on a train car. And so it's it's going to be harder, I think, for, for the transit industry to make the case for it being safe versus the airline industry, which I think is already in the process of, of doing that. And I, I personally feel safe on an airplane. It's as safe, as safe a small space, I think, as you're going to find. Mark, you've worked on a lot of deals. Do you have any behind-the-scenes stories that you could share with us? Yeah, without really getting into into a great amount of detail, um, thought it'd be interesting to relate just one of the one of the interesting projects that I I worked on that's sort of ancillary to the airline industry that I, I was covering pre- previously. Um, we actually raised money, uh, uh, some outside investment into Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic space tourism business, which isn't really an airline business, but uh, but was close enough that uh, that I had the opportunity to um, to uh, to help him to raise capital. Um, it's a it's an interesting interesting business um, where they'll they'll be taking uh, six people a time up into into low Earth orbit uh, and allowing them to unbuckle and be weightless and then return back down to uh, to Earth. The, it's a cool little project, and I think they're nearing uh, nearing the point of uh, of actually taking people up. But it was it was a it was an interesting departure from um, from the normal airline business that I was banking. Obviously, that's an interesting project. But when you have a name like Richard Branson behind something, is it easier to to get dollars or not so much? So, I mean, obviously, Richard Branson uh, has been very successful in in a number of different ventures. I think um, I think space tourism is is a pretty tough sell for for anybody. Um, and this was this is probably ten years ago that we were doing this. So, um, you know, very early days that made it a little bit challenging. But um, yeah, the, the 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 Branson name obviously was helpful. So we know your life isn't all work. And you've talked a little bit about um, you used to surf, a cycle. Talk a little bit about those experiences and how how do those just give you balance in your life? Yeah, look, I, I think it's great to to get outdoors and enjoy the outdoors. Um, and uh, yeah, I used to be a surfer back in the day, um, you know, Texas Gulf Coast, East Coast, uh, a little bit on the West Coast. I've even surfed on Lake Michigan, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as a you know a, a vacation strategy. You know, it, it's always fun to be out in nature, and I, I've sort of replaced that now with uh, with cycling. Um, you know, as a way, something I can do on a essentially a daily basis here uh, here in Chicago and and around the country. And so, yeah, it's a way to to get out there and breathe fresh air. Um, you know, currently cold air in Chicago, but but fresh <laughs> air, uh, and and you know, sort of disconnect and commune with nature a little bit. So all those themes sort of flow through, um, whether you're whether you're surfing or um, cycling or, or whatever. You're out there. You're essentially alone. You're with nature. It's all healthy and good and and good for you. And I think we're seeing even more of that. People just getting out, returning to some of those things. Uh, because our activity load isn't maybe as heavy right now. Yeah, look, I, I I've got to say I've seen more people out on the on the bike paths and bike lanes of Greater Chicagoland this summer than I've I've ever seen before. Obviously, there's there's a big push, and you know, obviously, cycling is one of those things you can do where the, 
your exposure to people is limited. You're not um, you're not close to people just by by safety, um, and you're moving hopefully fast, and and you've got lots of air moving around you. So it's not really a, a I don't think I'm not an epidemiologist, but not a COVID threat to be out there on a bicycle. And so I thought a lot of people are doing it um, less and less now that, uh, that things are cooling off. But but over the summer certainly um, that was that was a trend that was was going wild here in Chicago land at least. You've had time to look back on your Rice career, both undergrad and and business school. And when you look back on it, what are some of the things that that come to mind as far as what's shaped you and gotten you to where you are today? So really, I think one of the greatest things that Rice has going for it is it attracts um, some of the smartest people around. And I I think about my experience, particularly in undergrad, and the the people that were around me um, were so smart just unbelievably smart. And I, I think about, you know, coming, coming from a pretty good high school in Texas where I was, you know, fairly well ranked in the class is, is pretty humbling to, uh, to show up at Rice undergrad and, and be around these people who are just, just brilliant. Um, and, and to learn from them, uh, to learn from your peers is you know almost as valuable as, as learning from the professors, right? You are you're growing and you're learning and you're you're thinking differently just based on on the influence of of people that that you have around you. And I think at a place like Rice, where um, you know the people, the students are are super smart, it's easy to be humbled by by much smarter people being around you. And and that's really that's really part of the experience um, at the Jones School too, right? Obviously there were there were a diverse group of people um, with lots of different business backgrounds who um, who provided a different perspective. And um, because you basically know everybody in the class, you're able to to learn from lots of different people um, and and lots of different perspectives. And that that really enhances again the classroom education that's uh, that's going on around you. It really makes for the full package. There's been a lot of talk in recent years of the value of an MBA and, and whether it's maybe still as valuable. And now we're seeing right now, I think it's 60% increase in applicants because there's so many people out of work. What do you say to those who maybe question, is an MBA still valuable in, in your career trajectory? Yeah, I think it's um, it's really important what you do with it. And and it's really in your hands as as the person going to get that degree. For me, it was a game changer, right? It, it opened up the doors uh, to make the career transition that I was, I was trying to make. Um, and without, without that degree, I never would have been able to make that transition. And so for me, it was, uh, it was game changing. Um, and I think others that I know that have MBAs had the same experience, right? It's, it's hard to move from engineering to banking or consulting or um, non-engineering, non-industry jobs without some sort of catalyst to, to make that change. And so, yeah, if you are, if you are considering changing industries, uh, you know, the MBA is, is extremely valuable. I've got to think though, even beyond that, if you think about people that are like in executive MBA programs who, um, you know, are, are sponsored by their company, and not looking to make a change, really, then it's 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 just it's just increasing your skill set, 
and that obvious that obviously happens, right? It's not just the degree that that allows you to to that allowed me to make belief. It's the the skills that I I learned uh, in the program. So even for somebody who who doesn't intend on making a, a wholesale career change, I think there's got to be value to it. And um, you know, particularly for the the executives who are sponsored by their firms, you know, it's it's really your time as opposed to necessarily money out of pocket. But I'd say it's definitely got value uh, as long as you take advantage of of the time and you you're serious about it and you you use the skills that you learn and you learn the skills that are being offered to you. Um, you know, it's a it's for me uh, just an unbelievable return on investment. Is there anything else you'd like to share with I will have you know listeners? Yeah, so I think really the the overarching message, and and maybe it's included in in what I was saying previously, is you're going to be offered a lot of opportunities to um, to make a change, and you're going to be offered a lot of opportunities to to learn new things, whether it's uh, in school or on the job. And I think you should always take advantage of those opportunities. And if you think about the uh, you know, your career over the long haul, there's going to be lots of either opportunities or, or situations where you either can or must reinvent yourself. And so never pass up the opportunity to, uh, to learn a new skill, to try something a little bit different, and then implement those skills when you need to, to make a change. I think, you know, I chose to, to change industries and I used my MBA as a catalyst to do that. Subsequently, in my career, I sort of had to reinvent my uh, my focus in banking, and was able to do that because I had tried things that were sort of off the beaten path of uh, of the industry that I was assigned to cover. Did some things a little bit different, and you know, specifically airport privatization that then allowed me to change and be a, a public private partnership banker. You know, without having made that uh, made that leap uh, in terms of in terms of expanding my skill set, it might have been tougher to uh, to sort of reinvent myself and re uh, repackage myself in terms of in terms of industries that I'm I'm covering. Um, and I think about about Stephen Covey's seven habits, right? Sharpen your saw is habit number seven, and I, I really feel like that is. Um, as important a lesson uh, as you can learn and, and apply throughout your career. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mark Morehouse from Chicago, Illinois. We appreciate you being on the program. Thanks, Christine. This was fun. Stay warm up there this winter. <laughs> All right, will do. Thanks. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it and let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, David Drugliever, and Christine Dobbin.